In the US, nutrition has been much more about telling people what not to eat than what they should eat. When we're looking at a plate of food, how would you want somebody to build their plates? The real issues are the refined grains and the added sugars. Around three factors need to be addressed when we're looking at food. Instead of what and with what are the two things that I hang on. There's this concept of the glycemic index. Tell me about this incredible new study, which has just dropped on Netflix. The film producer proposed that we do vegan versus omnivore. You don't get to choose which diet you're on. We're just going to draw out of a hat. But Sarah the real twist to this was the identical twins. When you told people they were plant-based, the fear... Part of the fear is just the lack of familiarity. You could get benefits in four to eight weeks if you just shift the... I'm your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and I'm on a mission to uncover the maze of health myths around nutrition and well-being and guide you through my seven pillars of health. Join me on a journey of discovery and connection and put up a pew for a front row seat to the most exclusive health conversations of our time. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Professor Christopher Gardner, in my opinion, is the godfather of nutritional science. He is a Stanford professor and he has been researching nutritional science for the past 30 years. This year, he has conducted groundbreaking research in the new Netflix series, You Are What You Eat, looking at plant-based diets and omnivore diets in identical twins. And I started our conversation with a quick fire round of nutritional questions. Should we be eating like our ancestors? No. Are seed oils bad? No. Should we all be worrying about not getting enough protein? No. Can we get enough protein from plant-based foods? Absolutely. Calorie counting, does it work? For some people. This is a conspiracy theory, but I wanted to put this out there because this just jumped at me on social media. So I wanted to bring this in. This is the exact quote. Brown rice is bad for you and we should all eat white rice. Rice is full of a whole bunch of lectins. It shreds your gut and it's 80 times more arsenic than white rice. Wow. Yeah, I don't have anything to back that up. (laughs) We're going to dive into that a little bit more later because I just have to bring this to the forefront. Plant-based meat isn't as healthy for you as real meat. No, we'd have to get into that discussion. Garlic lowers your blood pressure. Didn't do that study, did a cholesterol study, maybe. Is the quality of the food more important than the macronutrient content? Yes. How quickly can nutrition change your health markers? For most of them in two to four weeks. Now, I would just want to start with basically how you've kicked off your year. This incredible new study, which has just dropped on Netflix. Tell me about the study and tell me why you wanted to conduct it in the first place. What I do for a living is feed and bleed and poop people. So I'm really interested in the human nutrition side of especially diet patterns. So Sarah, my field has moved from being very interested in a specific nutrient to thinking what is the main food that carries that nutrient to a broader picture today of what diet pattern would incorporate the foods that have the nutrients. Should you eat Mediterranean, mm-hmm. keto, paleo? As much as the scientists like the, the isolationist reductionist question so that they can trace down the mechanism and get a solid rigorous answer to what we've learned over the past decades is people eat foods, they eat in patterns. And so to reach them where they're at, somehow getting at a broader base of foods is more appropriate. So I've studied low-fat, low-carb, Mediterranean, keto, vegetarian, and the film producer that did the documentary came along and proposed to me that we do vegan versus omnivore. 
And I thought, oh, that is, I've actually never done that comparison. Uh, I'm only willing to do it if the omnivorous diet can be a healthy omnivorous diet. I never like to set up my, you know, the one I'm testing versus the straw man to knock over. And I said, I'm going to warn you ahead of time. There'd be a lot of similarities between a healthy omnivorous diet and a vegan diet. They'd have a lot of the same foods. So we might not find a lot of differences. Uh, so part of it was just a question that I had never done a strictly vegan diet. I've studied a vegetarian diet before. So I was interested in going that next step to the vegan diet. But Sarah, the real twist to this, which was brilliant and hadn't occurred to me, was the identical twins. So when the idea was proposed to me, Luis Saihoyo said, you know, and and we have some identical twins lined up that could do this. And my jaw just kind of dropped. And I thought, God, in my field, part of what we do is we, humans are all different. And we try to account for the differences by doing a randomized controlled trial. You don't get to choose which diet you're on. We're just going to draw out of a hat. And that tends to, to help balance out who sleeps better or worse, who exercises more or less, who's more or less stressed. But identical twins is another level. And I, I will tell you from having done this for 30 years, the hardest part of any of these studies is recruiting. You might have a brilliant idea, say, oh, I think you should eat gunk and you should eat whatever. And I'm really curious, want to do it? And stunningly, most people don't want to do that. Like, really, I could not be bothered. I don't have the time. The question doesn't interest me. So recruiting is always hard. And when he said identical twins, my first reaction was, oh, scientifically, that is super cool. And my second reaction was, oh, my God, that will we'll never be able to recruit identical twins for this. That sounds impossible. I've never tried before. And he actually had some twins lined up for us, not as many worked out as he had hoped. Uh, we were very fortunate that Stanford recently inherited a registry of identical twins. And so we were able to pivot and go there. We had a somewhat limited budget. We couldn't do more than 44 people or 22 pairs of twins. And we signed on and it was, it was fabulous. So vegan versus omnivore in identical twins. Mm -hmm. And I guess what was particularly interesting was didn't realize the appeal that would have to the general public. Do you know, well, I mean, I'm a nutritional scientist myself, so anything I see in this subject, I'm completely drawn into. I mean, there is so much scrutiny, I think, between these two sets of diets and everyone's kind of sat in one field. And the fact that we're bringing them together for one of the first times to see in identical twins. And we've had Tim Spector on here a lot talking about the Twin Registry UK and all of the fascinating studies he's done and why it's so important to actually do research on this specific target group because of obviously how genetically identical they are. It is really fascinating. And think, what was the most surprising thing that came out of it for you? It was so fun. But if you're really... Mm -hmm. Talking about the science, I actually approached the director and said, you know, it's a healthy omnivorous diet and a healthy vegan diet. And it's and it's eight weeks. I don't know. There's only so much we can change and more things change than I thought. And I'm, I'm happy to list them. Tell us what you were the most surprised by of all of the things. I know that you looked at the biological age. I know you looked at the gut microbiome. I know that you looked at the body composition. What was the kind of thing for you where you were like, Okay, this has really shocked me. Okay, first I have to have a clarifier. We did not do the body composition. The film crew did the body composition. They only did it 
in the four pairs of feature twins. With the DEXA scans. I actually think that was, that was very frustrating for me uh, because a lot of people have said, gosh, we didn't see the final results in Netflix. We didn't see the final results in the research paper. When will you release those? And I don't even have those data. That was it's such an expensive test that we decided we didn't have enough room for that. The most surprising thing was the biological clock. And can I share a funny story that goes with this, which is yes. my wheelhouse of familiarity is cardiometabolic factors. I really like assessing the diet. I look looking at blood lipids, blood pressure, glucose, insulin, inflammatory markers. That's kind of what I built my career on. And I said, really biological, it's eight weeks. It's only eight weeks. That That's just never going to work. And when they got the data back, they were still blinded. And they said, I don't know, this is pretty odd. We, we actually weren't really planning on seeing a big difference either, but we have three different biological clocks. And when we do analyses, they often don't line up. One goes one way, one goes the other way, and one doesn't change. And these these all seem to line up. And one of the first times we've seen this happen and you haven't unblinded it yet. So we don't know who is who, but we are on the edge of our seats. And it was the vegans who got a little younger. So the funny part of the story here is there's hundreds of, of hours of footage. When they got to the end and they saw these results, I said, oh my God, I remember you saying that you never thought it would work, but we actually never got that on film. So we would like you to re-record that line and act surprised. So pretend it was a year ago. But Sarah, there was a twist between the start and this time. I grew a beard. And they said, oh, from a continuity perspective, this is going to look bad. Please shave. No, I'm not going to shave the beard for you. I'm happy to repeat the line again. But I no, I'm not shaving. And they said, OK, well, this is going to look goofy and people are going to figure this out. But sure enough, I sort of started the movie in the early days, introducing the participants and we randomized them. And later toward the end, I had a beard. And then somehow there's a shot of me predicting before the study ever started that nothing would happen with biological age. And I had to fake it. But I, I really had said it, but it does crack me up that not only was it a fascinating finding, we're publishing a, publishing a whole separate paper just on that. So it's actually out there in preprint. So it's subject to criticism, but it, it hasn't been officially published yet. That was the most surprising thing. And I tried to make a joke of it at the results presentation for the twins. And I said, all right, we do have this really interesting finding. I want to see all the twins raise their hands. So which of you twins were the oldest when you were born? Who came out first? And they raised their hands and said, which of you got assigned to vegan? And half of them put their hands down. And I said, okay, for the half who still have their hands up, you're now younger than the other twin. By a minute or two, probably. So now you can describe yourselves that way. That was my silly little dad joke or scientist joke or something. On this show, you'll hear me talk a lot about the gut microbiome. So I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, but it is incredibly important for so many elements of our overall health. As a woman in her 30s, I'm becoming increasingly aware of how important our gut health is for our overall hormonal health. Being a woman is never easy, 
but there is so much that we can do to empower our health and feel comfortable in our bodies. The health of a gut microbiome can impact our serotonin production and our sleep quality. And these are two key areas of our mental well-being. And estrogen plays a massive role in the metabolism of our sugar and insulin sensitivity, which keep your gut microbiome regulated as well as your weight. And as estrogen levels start to fluctuate, our women can be left feeling anxious, low in energy, and gaining weight with no logical explanation. But our sex hormones start to decline in our mid to late 30s, and this can cause disruption to our gut health. So investing in your gut health could be the leading preventative factor to help support you through your perimenopause and menopause symptoms. I've got something very exciting for you to try. It is the first probiotic formulated for women going through perimenopause, menopause, and beyond to help tackle the symptoms of the decline in sex hormones and to support overall health and well-being. I'm talking about the Better Gut Daily Probiotic Supplement from Better Menopause. This was developed by a nutritional therapist who was experiencing perimenopause symptoms herself. Our gut health is a central node of our well-being, and women going through this difficult stage in life sometimes need all the support and help that they can get. So if you feel that you've resonated with anything I've said, or you feel that your gut health needs that extra TLC, try the Better Gut Probiotic Supplement for three months to see if it helps support your digestion or any of these perimenopause or menopause symptoms that I've just spoken about. So head to bettermenopause.com and use our exclusive code BEWELL to get 25% off your first order. And for those ones that did reduce their biological age, for anyone who's listening, can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Because, you know, for sure. automatically people are going to think, yeah. am I going to look younger? But it's so much more than that. Oh, and funny, I bet if you tried to see if anybody looked younger, that would not have been detectable. So the principle of this is something called epigenetics. Genetics is the DNA we get. That it's immutable. It can't ever change. You're stuck with your genetics forever. But in the last decade, the field of epigenetics has opened up, which means that for different sections of your DNA and different tissues and different cells, you can modify the DNA by attaching things to that structure, that double helix of nucleotides. And for people who maybe don't quite understand what DNA is or does, it's the building blocks for everything. It is the code for making mm -hmm. cells, enzymes, hormones, things like this. It works differentially in your hands, than your feet, than your heart, than your lungs. And you can upregulate the production of those things, or you can downregulate the production. And from a cardiometabolic perspective, this might mean you're actually improving or degrading your cardiometabolic health or your you know, your health span instead of your lifespan, how healthy are you? But it really is altering the activity of the DNA in such a way that you're sort of metabolically healthier or less healthy because of the alteration. We spoke a little bit about this, actually. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, the man trying to biohack his age, um, Brian Johnson, who lives now on a predominantly vegan <laughs> diet. Huh? So why do you think plant-based eaters had a better outcome, especially for this kind of one health marker of biological clocks. What is it that is kind of being so transformative with the DNA that you were just speaking about? What What is making us younger with vegans as opposed to meat eaters? And let me expand it beyond that. So I also want to hearken back to this idea that we wanted everybody to have a healthy diet. For us, that's quite often less added sugar and less refined grain. So between added sugar, refined grain, which they were 
both trying to lower, which would have minimized the difference. Some of the meat products, some of the animal products. Um, we've, we've got some biochemists or, or chemists on campus that are doing a little side project looking at sort of grilled meat versus grilled vegetables. And what they're seeing is that the byproducts of the meat have more of a DNA degrading effect than the grilled vegetables. So part of it is what, you know, what's the process of cooking and preparing the meats versus vegetables, what's being absorbed. Apparently, some of those components are going to the DNA and causing differential reactions. And I, I really can't explain it beyond that. It's a new area. <laughs> but I wouldn't have studied it, it is, before. But, but isn't that fascinating that actually now, so even 30 years on into nutritional research, you're still finding new areas that you hadn't come across before which just shows you kind of the forever changing field of nutritional science. Yeah, well, so let me add something to that. So I'll be a little more traditional. So for, you know, 100 years ago, we hadn't discovered the vitamins and minerals, and now we do, and now we have a recommended daily allowance for them, and they're different for men and women sometimes, and older and younger, and pregnant and lactating. Nothing's been added to that list since I've been in science for 30 years. And yet there's a whole nother field that some journals, particularly the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, has a whole section for something called phytochemicals, which might sound really fancy, but it's pretty benign. Phyto just means plant. Chemicals in plants. What does that mean? Oh my God, coffee, for example, has a thousand chemicals in it. We have all kinds of data to show that both coffee and tea are probably good for you. That's due to antioxidants. How many antioxidants are there? Oh my gosh, there are hundreds, probably thousands of antioxidants. They come with names like phenols, polyphenols, anthocyanins. Uh, there's just all kinds of things out there. It's never cheese. It's never meat. It's never pork. It's never chicken. The whole field of phytochemicals, a bunch of things that don't have a recommended daily allowance. They don't they haven't been pursued by scientists to the extent where we know exactly kind of how much for who, for how long. It's, it's kind of a wild west of open possibilities, but it's always plants. Whether they work or not, it's always plants. It's never animal products. I'm predominantly mostly plant-based, but I have a small bit of fish and that's kind of how I've had my diet for that 10 years. When I watched that show, I found it hilarious that when you told people they were plant-based, the fear that went over some of them. <laughs> it was like you were like embarking them to prison for seven weeks. They were quite terrified about being vegan. What I also love, which you didn't mention much in the show, but you always try and make food quite delicious. You're also very much advocating food yes. needs to taste delicious, it needs to be exciting, it needs to be diverse. Yeah. That's something that I heavily believe in. So how was their kind of, perception the ones that were on a vegan diet after the study did they want to carry it on or were they just kind of like i'm so thankful this is over get me back to me yeah i think part of the fear is just the lack of familiarity oh my god i'm gonna be vegan i get lettuce rice and beans holy crap eight weeks that's all they're gonna feed me is lettuce rice and beans and then they see oh wait there's some mediterranean there's some asian there's some latin american there's middle eastern yeah very much focused on people enjoying their food. If you'll remember, and if some of your uh, listeners saw this, I very intentionally at the beginning made it clear. I said, okay, you're going to be part of a study. You're going to be randomized to one diet or the other. Right now, I want you to think of the one you want least. 
and expect that you'll get it. If you're not comfortable with that, you can't join the study. And so that's a that's like an aha moment for many of them. Okay, I'm going to be in the study and I really want this one. And so I'm just going to count on getting that one. And I, I really need them to count on getting the other one. Uh, and one of them, in fact, in the big reveal, when they opened them up, they looked at their twin and said, damn it, just like he said, we both got the one we didn't want. But that in itself was interesting. And one of the pairs, one got what they wanted and one didn't. So even just psychologically, that was really fun to watch where, you know, some of them wanted vegans so they could try something different, thought omnivore, boring. Why would I join a whole study to do the same thing? Some of them were deathly afraid of the vegan diet. And it was an interesting mix. But what I feared the most, and I'm kind of saying this jokingly, I don't really think this happened, but it certainly could have. We realized after that big reveal, when we saw a couple of them say, drat, I really wanted to be vegan and I wanted to be omnivore. And we got the opposite. What if they had gone home and just switched? We never would have known. They were twins. I don't really think they did that, but work. that was one of the unusual aspects of identical twins. Tell me what you really believe people should be following from <clears throat> the results of the study, because they both did show quite good health outcomes. They both had quite high quality diets in the end. So it wasn't heavily negative and against the omnivore diet at all. It was very much actually, which I think is really interesting. And I think that puts it a lot down to the quality of food. And that's something that I think we don't speak enough about actually from a lot of studies is actually how was that conducted? What was the quality of the food like? Was it good quality or was it bad quality? Thanks for recognizing that. Actually, what the biggest study I ever did actually had 600 people for a year. It was a weight loss study. It was low fat versus low carb. We called it diet fits. The Dietary intervention, examining the factors, interacting with treatment success. It's a great nickname. I love the nickname. Uh, we expected to see differences in that, and we made sure they were both high quality, and we found virtually no differences whatsoever. And that was my main take home, was that if you, if you made them both high quality diets, you would really minimize the differences that some people are reporting. So my take home from this was, uh, yeah, Pretty much everybody did pretty well. The vegans actually did statistically better in five or six things. But I, I know most of those participants did not turn vegan for life. By the way, some of them are still vegan. I've, they've actually been reaching out to me a year and a half later ask, asking Is for help. Is that the help. two guys? Uh, multiple. Those young guys. Yeah. Uh, no, the two tall guys in particular, Charlie and Michael. And the public has, oh, so many people have been calling in the public saying, help me help me do this. And, the, you know, one message I want to provide now that it sounds like you're totally on board with. Yeah, I, I, I'm not promoting full on vegan for everybody. I don't think that works for a lot of people. I'm a whole food plant based eater and I almost all my meals are vegan, but there's so many ways to eat vegan poorly. Soda is vegan. White flour is vegan. I just hope people will see that you could get benefits in four to eight weeks they can be significant if you just shift to more plants. And part of this, I think the UK is pretty similar to the US in this regard. We eat an obscene amount of animal products just compared to the rest of the world. It's really striking if you ever look at a World Health Organization or FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization's 
maps. It's kind of striking, and when this is all related to environmental concerns and animal rights and welfare, there's plenty of room to cut back without going vegan. So I was just hoping that when people saw this and were interested in it, they'd say, oh, yeah, I, I think I could try some of that. I could move in that direction. And that would be like, that would be my biggest wish for what comes out of the film. Well, it's so important about the quality. And I love that you've mentioned before, I think this is about two years ago, I saw this on your Twitter, around three factors that need to be addressed more consistently when we're looking at food, or even when we're looking in, at studies, instead of what, in what context and what for. Can you elaborate on those three things? Because I think if people can have those answers, it actually allows them to rationalise a little bit more about kind of the food that they're eating. Because sadly, in the UK, two thirds of our supermarket baskets are full of ultra processed foods. And I think we've completely lost sometimes the context of like the quality of food that we're eating, as opposed to like, which camp are we sitting in? I always thought it was two, but you can define the three again for me. So it's instead of what and with what are the two things that I hang on. And I feel like, so after teaching for many, many years at Stanford, students will come up and say, oh, Professor Gardner, should or shouldn't I eat dairy? Should or shouldn't I eat fish? Should or shouldn't I take supplements? And I always say it depends. And that if you say that on the exam that I'm giving, you get 50% credit right away from just saying it depends. And then it depends on what, then you would have to go into with what and instead of what. So can I give you my favorite example? And by the way, I'm working on a book. Please. And uh, this is sort of the essence of the whole book is trying to say a lot of controversy would be resolved if you did this. Okay. So see if, if you'll appreciate this. Do you guys have Pop-Tarts in the UK? Is that a thing or is that just an American thing? Too? Such. That was such a 90s thing. Okay. So, but yes, but you I know, don't know if, if they're still around, but they were huge when I was a kid. If I said Pop-Tarts, you'd know what I meant, right? And they still have yeah, them. We know the what US. they meant. Yeah. Okay. Let's pay eggs. Eggs is particularly controversial in the US. I don't know about the UK. The plaque in heart disease is full of cholesterol. There's sort of a very cool, and I don't have time for this, metabolic disconnect from the dietary cholesterol to the cholesterol that goes in your plaque. But because of that metabolic fascinating pathway, sometimes eggs are pro and sometimes eggs are con. So are eggs good for you? It's really just not a dichotomous question, but if you apply instead of what or with what, it works really well. So let's say we're talking about with what. So let's take eggs that are scrambled and have a bunch of cheese on them. Let's take scrambled cheesy eggs and bacon and sausage. Let's have a veggie omelet that's stuffed full of vegetables. It's got salsa on top and it's got cider fruit. So are eggs good for you? I would say that veggie omelet was pretty good. And I would say the bacon and sausage one was not so good. And the Cheesy eggs might be somewhere in the middle. So let's bring in something else. Let's bring in steel cut oats with berries and nuts. And oh, that, that sounds pretty good. And let's, you know, just for a comparator, let's bring in Pop-Tarts. Like nothing could possibly be worse than Pop-Tarts. Like who has anybody ever done anything in the health community but demonize Pop-Tarts? And so you're working with somebody who likes eggs and you say, well, I'd, I'd really like you to have the veggie omelet. And so they start having veggie omelet every day and they've had that every day for six days. Then they say, you know, I'm kind of getting a little bored for the seventh day. Should I have a veggie omelet again or should I have steel cut oats? And you say, God, I didn't mean for you to have them every single day. I just said that was like one 
reasonable meal. No, you should have you should have more variety. You should have steel cut oats in your diet too. And so they come back a week later and they say, oh, I was totally listening to you. This is great. I had veggie omelet Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I had steel cut oats. So I had half and half. And now I'm just bewildered at Sunday. And I had them each three times. Which one do I have? Do I have the steel cut oats or the veggie omelet? And my answer, honestly, is you can have the damn Pop-Tarts at that point. God, you ate really well. Look how well you did Monday through Saturday. Go rogue for a day. Have a little bit of fun. Like if you had had that Pop-Tart on top of a Danish this day and uh, American sugary breakfast cereal this day and tons of bacon and sausage the other day, then that, then I would have been really sad that you had that Pop-Tart. But you ate so well the other six days. You really don't have to eat well 21 out of 21 meals a week. There's got to be some joy and pleasure in food. So if you do that... It's got to be happiness. Instead of what and with what, and in that larger context of what else is going on in life, all of a sudden, some of the camps that are warring over this is better than that, this is good for you or not, a lot of those disagreements would go away if you just added with what instead of what. And, and I guess your third one is, would be in this larger context of what's going on. Mm-hmm. I, I exactly. think we would have a lot more agreement and less stress and be healthier mentally and metabolically. You're probably listening to this show because you care about your health, both physical and mental. That's why I created Live Well, Be Well to share new ways to think about your health. I want to talk to you quickly about something that we all experience, and that is stress. Now, we can all get stressed about a host of things, even the minor things. And stress triggers the primal response. So even simply sitting in a meeting or traffic can trigger this. This brings me on to something called the vagus nerve, and it is incredibly important within the stress response and for calming our primal brains. This device I've been using is called Sensei. Now, it's a wearable touch therapy device. Research has proven that the vagus nerve activation calms the brain medulla responsible for stress and anxiety. Sensei is a device which uses infrasound resonance, and when paired with the sessions in the Sensei companion app, it helps reduce stress and improve overall well-being. In 10 or 30 minute sessions, you can feel an incredible sense of peace, reducing all those small moments of feeling stress or anxiety throughout your day. This device is generally a piece of modern magic and such an exciting step in modern well-being technology. It makes the perfect gift or even better, a self-care purchase. To experience a sense of calm at home, work or even commuting with your busy lifestyle, just go to getsensate.com and use the code Sarah Ann to get 10% off your first order. If you look at the standard American diet, right? Which is sad. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's quite ironic that it's called that. Um, when you actually look at that, if you can actually just think about the real foods that we can put back in already, that is just completely transforming in the landscape of how we look at nutrition. And I think that's such kind of like the nuance of so much of these conversations that you hear on social media or that we become sucked in on. And even someone as a nutritional scientist, sometimes I have to kind of double check myself and I'm like, hang on, now I'm confused. And if I'm confused, then I think actually the person who isn't a nutritional scientist, how are they gonna feel? So thank God you're here, Sarah, with this podcast. Well, thank God you're here because the next bit I want to get onto is something that I found fascinating in the last couple of years, kind of seeing the rise in it. 
especially from where it started. I know you're going to go into where it started, but you did a really interesting study in 2022, actually in the journal that you mentioned at the beginning on the keto med diet. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we've got two opposing camps here. We've got the ketogenic diet, which I want you to explain a little bit more in context. And we've got the Mediterranean diet, which I think all of our listeners will know quite well what that is. And that's what's spoken about a lot, especially in the UK, is kind of the optimal health kind of guideline to go towards. I think that's my first question that I want to start off with. Mediterranean, is it more lower carb than maybe we're generally recognizing? There is a one number. So wouldn't you agree, as much as all your listeners will recognize it, what if the Turks and the Moroccans and the Greeks and the French all got around the the table to say, this is the Mediterranean diet? So part of the beauty of it is the flexibility, but it's, you know, most of the food groups and the culture around it would be recognized by most people. I'll bet you I have some Americans who say they're on the Mediterranean diet who have had an Egg McMuffin for breakfast, a Whopper for lunch, a Big Mac for dinner, and keep a jigger of olive oil by their nightstand. And before they go to bed, they toss that down and say, hey doc, I'm Mediterranean. Why are you Mediterranean? Because I had olive oil. And it's obviously not that simple. But when you add up the olive oil and the nuts and the seeds and the fatty fish, you can actually you know, think about how high in fat and low in carb this Mediterranean diet could be. So Americans who are obsessed with fat used to eat 35% fat. And then we tried to get them down to 30, but we didn't focus on type. We focused on total. Mm-hmm. The Mediterranean, they've actually changed their guidelines because of people with diabetes and because of the Mediterranean diet. So when you get those healthy, unsaturated fats, you're displacing some of the refined carbs and the added sugars of that. And that's helpful for people with diabetes, for sure. So Americans have sort of eliminated the upper limit on fat, and they keep a limit on saturated fat and more than 10% calories from saturated fat. But but how high? So there isn't a number. I would, I would challenge you to find someplace that says, oh, the Mediterranean is 42.5% fat, because that just wouldn't work. It will, it will change from time to time. So what we thought was, I think there's universal agreement against refined carbs and added sugars. And if you look at one of my favorite papers that looked at the U.S. diet for the past couple decades, that's 40% of the U.S. diet. 40% is low quality carbohydrates. And so I'm immediately in favor of a low carb diet that gets rid of all 40% of that. So I think a Mediterranean diet would replace 20 of that with unsaturated fat and 20 of that with legumes and high quality carbs. I think a keto diet would get rid of all of those and replace all of those with fat. So we'll let, let's wrap up Mediterranean before we go to keto and just say it's low carb. If you got rid of all the crappy carbs and you didn't replace all of it, you replaced a lot of it with nuts, seeds, olive oil, avocado, fatty fish, you could get to 40, 45, 50% fat pretty easily. No, that is, it's just one of those things that when I read that, I was like, it makes complete logical sense, but it's never, ever really been spoken about as a low carbohydrate diet. But it, it is. I mean, yes, there is still grains in there, obviously, and some bread. But it actually, when you look at it with that lens, I mean, 40 to 50%. So what struck me was that the keto folks are all about really, really low carb. And to be in ketosis, 
you actually have to eat so little carb that you basically eliminate all your stores for carbohydrate. You don't burn carbohydrate for energy. You just burn fat. We can maybe get into that more later if you really want to talk about ketosis and ketogenic diets. But the thing that really struck me is how interested I was in people getting rid of 40% of their carbs that were the low quality carbs, but not the legumes, not the vegetables. And actually keto is okay with vegetables, especially above ground vegetables. No fruit. So yeah, keto like is- Like broccoli. Keto's no, broccoli's okay for keto. Fruit isn't, except for berries. So they allow you some berries, but uh, no grains, not even whole intact grains. So I make an unapologetically delicious kick-ass wheat berry salad, which is the whole wheat kernel in a salad that's a, an explosion of flavors and tastes. And we can give you, I'll give you my recipe later for wheat berry salad, but- That would be great. Getting rid of that and the fruit- and all the beans and legumes, and I'm for especially for vegans, I'm beans are just a, a fabulous powerhouse of nutrients. Why would you do that unless you first got rid of all the low quality carbs? Like, how much of a difference would it be to get rid of those? And what incremental difference would it be to get rid of the stuff that every health organization in the world promotes fruits, legumes, beans? Vegetables. Vegetables. Mm -hmm. That just seems crazy or whole intact grains. So we designed the study so that they, the two diets would be matched in three areas. They would have lots of vegetables, above ground vegetables, non-starchy vegetables, as minimal or, or no added sugar if possible, as minimal or no refined grain if possible. Those would be matched. And then quite simply, the keto would have no grains, even whole grains, no fruits, and no beans. And the Mediterranean would embrace all three of those. They'd embrace whole grains, they'd embrace fruits, and they'd embrace beans. And if we recruited people with prediabetes and diabetes, what would happen in that regard? How high was the Mediterranean diet in fat? So when we did it that way, it was like 55% calories from fat. Did they cook this themselves or were you delivering it to their door? So Sarah, I've now tried this twice and it seems to work really well so we have a mix so for the first four weeks of the study this is exactly what we did in the study that the netflix documentary is based on for four weeks they had food delivery so it sort of instantly not only be adherent but for a lot of these people you know if you say mediterranean they misunderstand oh it's going to take weeks before you get over some of that if you say vegan and they think it's lettuce beans and rice. It's going to take weeks before you get over that. You know, we had four weeks of meals. And this, oh, oh, I could eat this. Oh, and I could eat this. And here's another idea. And here's another idea. We were actually a little afraid that at the end of four weeks, when you we said, now you have to cook on your own, they'd revolt and they'd say, no, 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 I can't do it. This is a life of ease. I'm, I'm loving this life. Please continue to feed me. It's actually not as attractive as you think. You get a box of food for the week and that's all you can eat. If you're in the mood for something mm. else, you can't. You're supposed to only eat from the box that you got. You can switch the days around. So almost to the last number, I think a couple of people said, yeah, I'd like a little bit of that still. Most of them were really interested in cooking on their own. And they had a lot of ideas. They might not have liked everything that the food delivery service provided, but that, oh, 
wow, I like that one and that one and that one and the other one. And I'm either going to go buy that at a restaurant or takeout or I'm going to make it for myself. It was half food delivery and half cooking on their own. Actually, this one was four weeks of food delivery and eight weeks of cooking on their own. And they did quite well at it. We were pleased. Oh no, the last thing, just because I want to double check that my listeners understand the difference between refined grains and unrefined grains, just so we're really clear on what Uh grains they were eating. Preferably, I always like to frame it in terms of white bread, wheat bread, and wheat berries like I had in my salad. So particularly for a group of people that are at risk of or suffering from diabetes, sort of, oh, you know, I, I try to improve my health. I went from white bread to wheat bread. I'm all set now, right? It's like, well, no, not really. There's this concept of the glycemic index, which is how fast the carbohydrates in the food that you're eating appear in your blood. And what you would like is a very slow release of glucose that allows your body to handle it. If it's a very rapid spiking of glucose, your body freaks out a little bit and it spits out a rapid bolus of insulin and then glucose goes up and down and you don't really want that. And so interestingly, and this surprised me, it's probably 15, 20 years ago, I was looking into values and the glycemic index of whole wheat bread is the same as white bread. And I thought that that can't be. The wheat bread is more nutritious. It's got fiber in it, but the defining factor became that both the white bread flour and the wheat bread flour have been pulverized to a powder. That's what flour is. There's really not much digestion left for you. And the the limiting factor there is when that hits your intestine, it takes enzymes a while to break them down into small enough pieces to be absorbed, unless it's already done for you. And then it practically flies into your intestinal tract. So wheat, your bloodstream. wheat mm. berries or farro or any of the whole kernel wheats, there's different names for them. You have to chew them. It takes times for the enzymes to get at the different sections of that. And so it's a much lower glycemic index. So when we said refined carbs, we were mostly talking about flours. And I, I think that would be the same for in my house, just because of different things we cook, we have garbanzo flour and we have pea flour and we have flax flour. Those those would all be the same. So they certainly have functional properties in the food world, but I would call those refined grains. And we were trying to get the participants to avoid refined grains and added sugar because of that. I think one of the biggest um, moments we had on this show it was probably about a year ago it was when Dr. Sarah Berry who I think you know very well was speaking about the food matrix and was actually saying the difference between jumbo oats and milled oats and how they respond differently in your body because it's broken down and I think even that simplicity you can have exactly the same porridge and react in a completely different way and it's exactly what you're saying about your wheat berry and the bread whereas so many times we're going and I, I know my parents do still go and buy the brown bread that's still got 30 ingredients in and are saying this is healthy it's brown it's not maybe not as bleached but it's still got 30 ingredients it's still a very processed food and so it's trying to it's trying to also navigate those food labels right that say high fiber to your five a day on which actually is, com- is basically it's a complete misconception the study results what happened between the mediterranean and the ketogenic. So first of all, both groups lost quite a bit of weight. So uh, let's see, what would it have been in kilos? It's probably uh, six, seven, eight kilos. And this was a, a, a crossover study. So everybody had to do both diets. 
Regardless of what you started or ended with, you lost almost the same amount of weight and you kept it off for three months. And we even went back three months later to see how they were doing. And most of them had kept that off as well. So both groups had lots of benefits. You know, it'd be hard to say it was the diet versus the weight loss, but the weight loss is a huge part of this. Weight maintenance is a huge part of this. So how about weight loss with a pretty high fat Mediterranean diet versus a really high ketogenic diet? So in absolute numbers look like oscillated hemoglobin went down a little more for the keto folks, but it wasn't statistically significant. If you're someone at risk of diabetes or with diabetes, everybody probably knows that you test your blood sugar to see if it's in range or not. And it goes up and down all the time. Mm-hmm. If you really wanted to impress mm-hmm. your physician for the day before you go in for your blood draw, you could do a really great job and say, I don't know what's happening, doc, because look at this. Do you see that number? Hemoglobin is the key word in glycosylated hemoglobin. So our blood cells that carry the hemoglobin live for about 90 days. Glycosylated refers to glucose. And this happens all over your body. But if there is a lot of glucose floating around, too much usually, it will just attach to things almost randomly. And so Mm. there's actually a method to show how much glucose has randomly attached to the red blood cells in your body. And because red blood cells live for three months, it's kind of an indicator how you did for the last month or two. So you might have cheated for the day to really impress your physician. But if they took your glycosylated hemoglobin, your physician might say, congratulations on doing such a great job yesterday. Looks like over the last month or two, you have not been doing very well because here's your level. And I I need you to do some more and here's a medication for you. So the main outcome of this study was glycosylated hemoglobin. Fasting glucose went down in both groups. Insulin went down in both groups. Weight went down in both groups. Liver enzymes went down in both groups. HDL went up in both groups. Triglyceride went down in both groups. All those things are good. There are only two things that were statistically significant. And one was in the keto diet, the LDL cholesterol went up and Mediterranean went down and that was statistically significant. And that's clinically relevant. And that that's quite easily explained because the keto diet doesn't really care much about fat or type of fat. And their mm. saturated fat was higher and saturated fat more than dietary cholesterol, if you ever want to get into the metabolism. But you know that because that's your field. It's really more the saturated fat that raises blood cholesterol. And that has to do with the LDL receptors, low density light protein receptors that take LDL cholesterol out of the blood. In the keto diet and med, they both saw a drop in triglycerides, but the ketogenic diet saw a bigger drop. So it's actually, it was a benefit to have a bigger drop in triglyceride. So this is a little overly simplistic, but they got better in almost everything. The keto diet did better in one thing and worse in the other. So is that a a wash that of all the things that were statistically significant, it was a wash. And my response to that was, if it's that close to a wash, why would you go out of your way to get rid of beans and fruits and whole grains? Mm-hmm. Why would you give up all those other things? If really, this had been my hypothesis from the beginning, the real issues are the refined grains and the added sugars. And if you could get rid of those and replace them with a combination of healthy unsaturated fats, and beans, vegetables, fruits, legumes. That allows you more unapologetic deliciousness. It's just more culinary options there, and I want to have fun eating. 
I absolutely love interviews like this one, which give you so much useful advice for your own life. And if it's helped you, this is an invitation to join my inner circle. It will give you exclusive access to a host of things, expert written articles, nutritious, delicious recipes, your own members hub newsletter, podcast plus, and also products and discounts decided by me for you. For one very small investment, it will help guide and support your health. If you use the code SAMCOMMUNITY, you can get 20% off your Inner Circle membership. Just head to www.sarahannmacklin.com. Do you know one thing that I'm getting into my brain as you're telling me this? That I has been kind of a key question since you've been explaining the results. Did you take any of um, any poo samples for the gut microbiome? We do, and actually they're under analysis right now by the Sonnenberg lab. Yes, I, but I don't have the answers because they're not done with it. They're taking longer it. than I wanted to. Because that's just one thing that it's, I mean, apart from it not being fun to be on the ketogenic diet, just because, and we haven't gone into kind of the amount of fat that you need, because I think this word is also thrown around in context a lot with that actually not being a ketogenic diet sometimes. And you've got to go to real extremes of having such yes. high amounts of fat in your diet to be in ketosis. So it's not just kind of a, a carnivore diet or having a high fat diet is completely different. And it's, you know, started in hospitals working with children and epilepsy. And the, I, and you know, the amounts, when I went to go and, and study this, the amounts of MCT oil and the amounts of high fat to try and get these children to have it was so difficult. And so when we're actually like looking at this as scrutiny, it's, it is really difficult to have a ketogenic diet. But aside from that, you know, the gut microbiome is the one yes. thing that I find really fascinating in this whole sector, which I don't think gets spoken about enough. And I'd love to have known, because a lot of people say when they go onto the ketogenic diet, apart from the bad breath and, and you know the few things that come up and the brain fog for the first few days, is that they all get then go, I feel fantastic, yeah. my head's clear, you know, I'm so much more switched on. But in my mind, I'm thinking, because I'm very passionate about the gut microbiome and mental health, how is their kind of mental health and gut microbiome in the long term? It's gonna be so hard to test that. So I, Likewise, I've heard that from many people about the mental clarity. When um, Atkins wrote about this for his very popular diet, on the title of his book, he said, this ketogenic diet is like sex and sunshine. Those are the words. Like, really? I don't know. That, that Somehow that just doesn't strike me. But there, there was a positive attribute to this. Yes, some kind of mental clarity comes out of this, which I... I have attributed to being so good at getting rid of added sugar and refined grain. When we did this in the ketogenic and Mediterranean diet study, they both lowered their carbs a lot and they both really got rid of added sugars and refined grains. But the keto people did better. I can imagine that because the keto folks were told no carbs whatsoever for the most part. And the Mediterranean folks said, you know, no added sugars, no refined grains, but you can have this, this and the other thing. And they slipped a little more than the keto folks. Like if you can't have any you are certainly not going to have a tablespoon of sugar or white flour. If you're like going to, if you're going to go rogue mm -hmm. for the day and deviate, you know, you can't go that rogue. I'm going to have, you know, a little handful of beans or a little handful of something else. And so they, they did so much better at that. So one of the things, if you're on a ketogenic diet and you're in ketosis, you generate a higher amount of a molecule called beta-hydroxybutyrate. And it is something that you can measure by peeing on a stick that turns a color. But a better thing is a blood test. And we did this blood test on everybody. And stunningly, 
at least half of the people could not get into ketosis. They were still at a beta-hydroxybutyrate oh, wow. level that was too low. Now, does this suggest a lack of adherence? You know, and we spent a lot of time talking to the dietitians. said, yes, I'm sure for a couple of people, this is a lack of adherence. They're just, there's some people, even though we're delivering the food, they can't seem to do it. We wrote a whole paper, a whole separate paper on adherence. And, you know, damn it, we bought the food, we delivered it, and they didn't eat it all. And they're humans. That's, you know, we could study rats, and there's a downside to studying rats. So thank God they were sort of honest enough to say, even though you delivered it, we didn't eat all of it. Most of them were fairly adherent. And one of the things that we really pursued deeply, and I, I feel strongly about this, is the health educators from this study said, yeah, there are some people that are nailing this. They are super excited. They're super adherent. They ask lots of questions. I'm completely sure they're on board. And they did not achieve ketosis. So I think it's actually hard. You have to get so low in carb. It's hard, harder than most people think. And then staying in ketosis is also really hard for most people. Humans are so variable. I can always find somebody that says, oh, no, nailed it. I'm in ketosis. I've been doing it for years. I'm doing fine. I really think the rubber hits the road when you take a group of people and randomly assign them and say, your diet A, your diet B, or do the crossover. You get them both. And we found sort of 12 weeks on each phase and 12 weeks later, really, maybe one or two were still on a ketogenic diet out of the 40-ish people there in the study. Everybody else, mm. even people who had done really well at one point on study, we've got these lines in a graph that show where they go sort of from a no adherence to high adherence. When the study ended, whoop, all the lines in the keto group just plummeted. Well, that's the biggest thing, right, about your nutritional lifestyle. Because I, I, I'm still struggling with the word diet because diet to me feels hyper-restrictive. And so with any type of lifestyle, when you're looking at these kind of like different camps of diets, it's kind of like which one's going to be the best for you long term because surely that's going to be the only one that you're going to reap the best health benefits from as opposed to something that's short and sharp because then your body goes into, it's not quite sure what's happening and it will gain the weight, lose the weight, gain the weight, lose the weight. And that's, I think, where I feel we've got hyper confused about with nutrition. When there are new studies coming out, how can people take more of kind of a nuanced, less reductionist view to kind of the media headlines? But the biggest thing, and you'll know this from doing podcasts, the titles, you know, the thumbnails that are clickable. Yeah. People want something that they can grab on grasp onto how can people themselves if they're not scientists try to get navigate this landscape because it is so confusing for so many people you should buy my book that isn't out yet that i'm working on because it's totally trying <laughs> i was to... gonna say why haven't i got it <laughs> yeah i'm totally trying to address that um like the first five chapters are stop obsessing about this and the next five chapters are start embracing this. And so there, there's just things that we're super hung up on. You know, I, I really feel for people with all the nutrition information, including dis and misinformation out there. It just really like something simple. They just want to eat. They want to go to the store and shop and say, oh, I, you know, I'm a savvy eater. I'm going to look for this label or this thing. God, they told me to buy low fat and that didn't work. They told me to buy organic and now I'm, I'm eating all these organic cookies. They told me to buy keto. They told me to buy, to avoid this 
the lectins and the in beans. Come on, beans. Oh yeah, can we just touch upon that lectins? Because that okay. was one of the things that brought up in one of my quick fire questions about brown rice. Now I sent that to Sarah Berry and quite a few different people who were like, who is this person? And I was so shocked that the scaremongering side, and I think it was because it was sent to me by about 50 people on Instagram, all terrified to now eat brown rice because it's got lectins in. So can we now just kind of decompose the lectin discussion? I haven't even bothered to study that because it's in, you know, lectin is in foods that have fiber and a lot of nutrients. And it's it's just one of these issues that, you know, if you looked at coffee, there's acrylamide in coffee. And about five years ago, there was a, uh, a U.S. judge that said all coffee now has to contain a cancer warning that coffee contains acrylamide. It made all the headlines for a while. And then somebody said, it's got a thousand beneficial compounds in it. And it's got one thing in a small amount. If you skipped coffee for that one reason, you'd be missing the thousand beneficial things. And coffee is cultural and coffee is social. Why are you fear mongering over this one thing? There are a lot of things in life that if you look really deeply into them, you could find a concerning molecule in most foods and taken out of context, that would be fear-mongering. You need to put it in the context of, again, instead of what with what. So what nutrients did it also come in with, the beans and the rice, what sources of nutrients were there? And so instead of having the beans, you went and bought a Big Mac? That was just so wrong. And, and Americans will do that. You like tell them, you know, historically, in the U.S., nutrition has been much more about telling people what not to eat than what they should eat. And when you tell them not to eat and don't tell them what to replace it with, they are incredibly resourceful at finding things just as bad or worse to eat. And I, I can't blame them because it was the fear mongering and the avoid this. It wasn't, oh, let's start eating this. And instead of even telling you what's bad for you, by the time you filled your plate with this and eaten a lot of that, oh, turns out you're full. Oh, I don't even have to tell you to not eat that because... You're full. Okay, let's just skip that negative message today and go with unapologetic deliciousness and get on with our life. Sarah, I'm so sorry to cut in, but since Live Well, Be Well is all about health and well-being, I need to tell you what great mental shape I'm in today. Since we started producing this podcast, it seems that you've been on quite a health journey. And seeing you blossom honestly fills me with joy. My sleep cycle's on point. My gut microbiome is in better shape than ever. I'm even doing HIIT workouts. Can you believe it? But the reason I rudely interrupted this interview is to tell you about the adaptogenic coffee that you've suggested to me earlier this week, which contains lion's mane mushroom and rhodiola. Two things I personally don't know much about. Perhaps you can enlighten me. Science shows that lion's mane mushroom is known to improve memory, mental clarity, concentration, and overall, just your brain health. And rhodiola is a powerful adaptogen known for its effects on stress levels and brain functioning. Okay, that's all sounding very exciting indeed. And I can confirm these shroomy coffees are absolutely delicious. And they come in these single sachets, which is incredibly convenient. But I don't really understand what makes them so special. So what exactly is adaptogenic coffee? The medicinal mushrooms and coffee are probably one of the most perfect pairings. You get all the benefits of regular coffee, which we do love, 
whilst minimising any side effects. So why does this happen? I know you're going to ask. Caffeine is a nootropic. It increases our alertness and our attention. But many of us will have experienced the increased levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which results in, sadly, the jitters and anxiety. This has 100% worked wonders for me this week. So where can people get them? Okay, so if you want to try these at home, we have a special discount code from the amazing brand, London Nootropics, and they have three different blends to choose from. So listen up, Sam, here is your mix. You can have Zen, it's probably the most balancing. It's great if you're caffeine sensitive. Then you've got Mojo. This is perfect for that natural boost. If you're feeling a bit fatigued, it makes a really good pre-workout because of the cordyceps and also, get this, the Siberian ginseng. And my favourite, to experience the effects of lion's mane and rhodiola, get yourself some of the Flow Blend. We've got a bit of a treat for the listeners, right? A discount code? Yes, we do, Sam. And I know that you love it because you love a discount. So all you need to do is use the code LIVEWELLBEWELL to get 20% off at londonutropics.com. A box of each blend is only £15, so you're kind of getting a very good deal here. And subscriptions start at £12 a month, delivered straight to your door. On the unapologetically deliciousness, that was a mouthful to say, <laughs> but I love it. We've spoken about low-carb, Mediterranean, ketogenic, omnivore, plant-based, Okay, this is what I feel like I talk about with my clients every day, but looking at a plate of food, how would you want somebody to build their plates? Earlier this year, the American Heart Association put out an evaluation of diet patterns. American Heart last redid their guidelines in 2006, and they redid them in 2021, and they're not really a lot different. Not much of the science <laughs> has changed. And so it wasn't, woo, oh, amazing news. The thing that you were supposed to avoid, you're now supposed to eat. Now, it was pretty consistent. But then somebody said, given this new dietary pattern interest, why don't you write another paper? They've already done all the work linking heart disease and different types of heart disease to the different components. And there's 10 different components they recommend you include or avoid. Why don't you match patterns to them? And when we did that, we found, wow, it turns out the DASH, which is the Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension, it's a very blood pressure oriented diet, and the Mediterranean and the Pescatarian and the Vegetarian are all really well aligned. The next two in line would be a high fat vegan diet or a low fat diet. So if you take sort of a more traditional low fat, relatively healthy diet or a vegan diet that's higher in avocados, nuts, seeds and things like that, those are pretty close. So with, with minor tweaks, you'd be fine or all by themselves, they'd be pretty fine. So those, all of those patterns were in the top group. And then we won't get into the others, but even something like low fat vegan got pinged because American Heart is about lower carb, higher unsaturated fat diets. And if you do a very low fat vegan diet, which is an Ornish, McDougal, Grieger, Pritikin, Esselstein diet, those are all uh, U.S. docs. Actually, your triglycerides go up, your HDLs go down. So all those patterns, to be honest, are pretty similar. If you go back to your simple question, what's on the plate? It's This is going to sound terrible. It's kind of like the U.S. my plate thing. It's half your plate is veggies and fruits. And a, a sizable portion is whole grains and beans and legumes and things like that. And there's room for fish and some dairy products, particularly yogurt. 
but it, it would be mostly plants. So uh, I've had a lot of fun for probably 15 years now, having hooked up with my other advisory role on the CIA, not the Central Intelligence Agency, but the Culinary <laughs> Institute of America. That's my super... I was about to ask you a whole other list of questions. <laughs> yeah, that's my other corny joke. So the Culinary Institute of America has been one of the most gratifying relationships that I've developed over the last 15 years, especially with Greg Drescher, who has, uh, you know, he's one of the leadership folks in that group. And as we started working together, I said, Christopher, you're really missing out on something here because chefs know how to make just about anything taste great. That's our profession. Why don't you do this or that? Uh, he started out with the word craveable. And I thought, oh, craveable sounds good. I definitely want craveable food. And he quickly pivoted to unapologetic deliciousness. And I, I don't know if he did this for me, but I almost feel like he did it for me because I'm glad it resonates with you. But I think it resonates with me mm. more than most people. So certainly that probably sounds good. Unapologetic deliciousness. But the key there is apologizing. I got a PhD in nutrition science. I learned how to do reductionist studies to say things like fiber is good for your microbiome. Fiber is good for lowering your cholesterol. And I distinctly remember telling people decades ago something similar, and I'm exaggerating a little here, obviously. Sarah, I've got some cardboard here. This cardboard doesn't taste as good as the cookie or the steak that you're just about to have. But this cardboard, unlike the cookie and the steak, are going to improve your metabolism. And my face is scrunched up because I'm apologizing. I'm apologizing that I'm asking you to eat something where I have to compromise your taste for the sake of health. Will you please do that for me? And he said, why are you apologizing? Why don't you unapologetically, unapologetically tell them you're going to blow their taste buds away. You're going to have these heritage grains and beans with seared vegetables with a Moroccan sauce and all these spices on it. It might have a small portion of meat, two ounces, but not six or eight or 10. The meat might be a condiment or it might be a side dish now, but the center of the plate would be plants and it would be Mediterranean or Asian or Middle Eastern or Latin American or African. And oh my God, when we draw on all the food groups of the world and apply culinary skills to them, we can blow your taste buds away. Let's do that. And you can stop apologizing. That term really hits home for me because I really don't like apologizing. I would really prefer to come to somebody with a face that's just radiant and full of joy saying, wow, you are really going to like this. I'm so happy for you. But you must have also seen this change since you started being a plant-based eater in the 80s. Because I mean, our diet has changed considerably with the options available. Yes. Uh -huh. From when you when you started, right? So you must have seen this like explosion of food culture around plant-based eating, especially in like the last 10 years. But in the 80s, I can imagine it was quite limited. It definitely wasn't unapologetically delicious. Yeah, I started in 83. So this is my 40th year as a plant-based eater. And it, it was definitely harder. A lot more cooking on your own. Had my favorite cookbooks and everybody had the same one because there were only three. But yeah, now... Now there's just a world of international fusion of flavors. And what are those couple of things that you said that we should focus on in this book that's coming out? Can you spill any? Can you let us know? I focused on originally uh, organic, GMO, protein, dairy, alternatives, coffee and tea, sugar, sugar substitutes. 
And I kind of went through all these and said, here's the cool metabolism about it. But here's the practical side is when you bring in something of your personal values to animal rights and welfare, global warming, or even human labor abuses in slaughterhouses and things like that, you could see why two people might make different choices because it's not just about health. It's about aligning it with your values. And once you do that, you probably feel a little better about being different than the person next to you. And even though you might haggle over the lectins or something metabolically, you're on board for greenhouse gases or land use or eutrophication or things like that. It's, ah, okay, I can. that's actually not a priority for me, but I see it is for you. Oh, that's why you're making that choice. And I'm making this choice. I'm okay with that. We can still be friends. So I now work a lot with the Sonnenbergs in the US who are microbiologists. And I now have the honor of being on the scientific advisory board of Zoe. One of my staple breakfasts has been avocado toast. And during the pandemic, I was trying to keep the students engaged. And I said, okay, before our boring lectures that are all on Zoom, let's, you're all home now. What are you cooking? Let's have an avocado toast contest, share what you're eating. And one of the students said avocado toast with kimchi. That is a staple in my life now. I have avocado toast with kimchi and many different kinds of kimchi or sauerkraut twice a week. That is a total staple. Amazing. And another simple one for breakfast went back to the processing of grains, as you were mentioning before. So I've definitely been a little bit snooty about my steel cut oats. I talk about rolled oats and quick oats and things like that. And I said, I only eat McCann's steel cut oats. And my father-in-law said, why do you eat those? Why don't you eat groats? And I said, what are groats? And he said, that's the whole grain. It hasn't even been steel cut. It's the whole oat kernel. Last night, I boiled my groats in water and left them sitting overnight. And when I woke up in the morning, I only had to cook them for two minutes. And I had whole oats. And you know what? My whole life has changed because it hasn't actually changed. I eat really well, but I, I feel like adding the kimchi to my avocado, moving from steel cut oats to groats. At this point, I'm making small modifications, mm -hmm. but are just even, even further aligning with how I understand things, how I see things, what I find available, what I hear about. So to me, it's a, the whole food thing is a journey. You can just keep making these mm. modest changes as you understand it more. And most of my choices are fine. I'm just going to keep refining them as some of my choices go away and some new choices become available. And, and if I embrace and enjoy that food journey, it's actually more fun than stressful. So much more fun. I think, honestly, we're having this conversation at the beginning of the year when most people decide to set these like extreme health goals and then four weeks later have this mass amount of guilt and shame and completely give up altogether. And I think the biggest thing is what you just said, it's the refinement. It's like, what could you do? What's, I always say to my clients, what's the one new vegetable that yeah. you could put into your shopping basket this week? So by the end of the month, you've got four new vegetables that you've never yeah. tried before, that you've taken time to cook. And when we look at it like that, it becomes a little bit more fun, which I think so much of these conversations kind of miss out on. And it brings me to like my last big question, 
Christopher. I want to know from your last 30 years, and I, and, and, I, and I say it because also 30 years of, of human clinical trials, which is very different to the maths models. You're actually working on human health directly on random trials, high quality trials. I want to know what's the next area of research within this field that you really want to focus on? Ah, great. Thanks for that question. Uh, it's actually food systems and from the perspective of institutional food. So I would really like to contribute to changing agriculture. I don't think we can eat differently unless we grow foods and raise different foods. I think the, the combination of animal versus plant foods and the types is out of whack. To change that, I want all those people that are farmers and ranchers to earn an honest living. And so I can't say, yeah, just stop doing that because I want you to. I'm quite sure they would grow or raise something different if there was a guaranteed income to this. So part of my thinking is, okay, if I go to the store and ask for something different, no one's going to notice. But if hospitals, universities, work sites, places that make food for thousands of people on a daily basis start rearranging their menus aligned with some of these things that I'm interested in, they will probably pick different vendors. They'll go to different farmers or the farmers that they're working with will be more agreeable to growing or raising something new. So my partnership now with chefs in institutional food settings is what brings me the most joy right now because I can see that they're the menus have changed. There are more plant-based options. I'm seeing it move. I'm seeing chefs embrace this, universities embrace this, my hospital is embracing it. I get to work with folks at Google who are changing their cafes in work sites like that. It's just intoxicatingly fun to see how many others are embracing this. So I'm more hopeful than I have ever been in my whole life because of the institutional food setting and the chef aspect of making it unapologetically delicious and not depriving people, but helping them mm -hmm. thrive and enjoy this. So I would like to do more institutional food setting interventions. I'm trying to keep my one foot in the door of feeding and bleeding and pooping people, vegan, Mediterranean, keto, omnivore, paleo, what, you know, whatever the flavor of the month is, I have to keep my job and have grant money so that I can publish enough studies that you'll invite me to be on your show. But the other side of me really wants to go into this new area of helping people change institutional food. I think that will be the most impactful change in the next decade that I could contribute to. Well, then that also just changes so much about the food systems, you know, which are sadly in a really, really messed up state. If we think about even how meat has grown, or the cattle is looked after, how we think about our soil health, like, you know, where our vegetables are coming from when we're looking about the diversity of the nutrients that are in our soil. It all kind of stems from the beginning of the food system, which we kind of forget when we're in a supermarket or ordering mm -hmm. our foods. And so I'm going to be watching that very closely. So, Christopher, my last question, which is the last question, as I ask all my <laughs> guests, is... I wonder if this relates to your last answer. What does live well, be well mean to you? Oh, well, certainly beyond food. Enjoying many aspects of life and finding how interconnected they are. And it's, it's not just living long, it's living vibrantly and contributing. I'm sure you put a lot of thought into it. You may have a different definition, but I, I do love the title of your show. It's fully aligned with everything that I pursue. So thanks for 
allowing me to talk to you and being aligned with your vision. Thank you, Christopher. I, I absolutely loved having you on. And do you know what? The best thing about that question is in over 250 interviews, we've only had two similar answers. <laughs> Every single answer has been different. And I'm like, that is that is the interpretation of living well, being well, Good, is that yeah. it's just completely unique to that individual. That person, yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Yours is healthy and vibrant, being vibrant, having fun. Thank you so much for all your work. I'm definitely going to have to get you on again to hear about the gut microbiome uh, and the results. Keto med. Yep. Okay. And the keto med and um, more about your book. I wish you all the best in writing it. And, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sarah.